Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And um, today I have, um, through the dint of wonderful IT, Fujima Flippery, for the second time of asking, my friend here, Jason Shen, who's joining me from where in the world, Jason? I'm here in Brooklyn, New York, so it's great to be here, Russell. Good. And I already feel the need to sing the song, but I shall restrain myself because no one needs that. So tell us a bit about you, Jason. Uh, well, I am an executive coach. I work with uh, founders and leaders who want to navigate change and swing bigger at the projects that really matter to them. And, you know, today I'm, I'm here, I want to talk about resilience, I want to talk about um, pivots, I want to talk about this book that I've been um, writing around helping startup founders pivot their companies, and it's just great to be here. Cool. Well, look, um, talk to me a little bit about uh, your experience in the, in the commercial world, because I know this is actually quite interesting. So take us through that. Sure. I was... Um, I was always interested in computers growing up as a kid and studied uh, biology at Stanford, which was sort of science oriented. I didn't really understand um, software engineering per se wasn't quite my thing. And when I got to Stanford, because I grew up in New England, I finally learned about Silicon Valley. I learned about startups. I really just wasn't that aware of what was out there, you know, and it's sort of like that exposure and then spent the last 14 years working in marketing roles, product management roles, started several companies of, you know, Y Combinator backed uh, ride sharing company before Lyft and Uber was really uh, quite large. And then later a hiring business that we pivoted into a, a gaming AI company. And that was ultimately exited to Facebook, where I spent a couple of years leading product teams inside of Facebook. So, you know, I, I think what I do now really is informed by all those different experiences in small companies, big companies, and a wide range of uh, industries. Right. And so um, what's interesting about the technology world is that things move fast. And you've mentioned this word pivot a few times. So let's, uh, let's talk about uh, pivot in the sense of an organizational pivot, because obviously there's a pivot in terms of personal development, but let's, let's bottom that one out first. Yeah. So I think what happens in a uh, company pivot is that the company is moving in a certain direction. They have a certain um, problem that they're trying to solve, a certain audience that they're solving it for. They have a particular way that they're trying to solve that problem. And they have a way of making money from that solution. And 
Typically, there are some iterations and minor changes to parts of uh, all of those aspects, but often companies come into a point where something major has to change. For instance, the audience might, you might start with doctors and you go to nurses. That's not too big of a change, but if you went from doctors to, um, uh, you know, hospital administrators, mm-hmm. yeah, or accountants, you know, like all of a sudden it's a, it's a pretty large change and that affects the way you talk about the company. There's a lot of people who were using it who aren't going to use it anymore. And so often those transitions for early stage companies are, are very common. And in fact, uh, this one uh, venture capitalist, Fred Wilson, has kind of looked at his own portfolio and found that most of the companies in his portfolio, this was back in 2007, had gone through what he called either a complete or a major transformation of their business. Yeah. And the, the companies that were sort of, in his view, failures were less likely to actually have you know, gone through that transformation. The, the winners tended to be more likely to have uh, done it, which suggests that this is actually an important step in a company's evolution. So, so what tends to happen in the pivot? Is it uh, obviously a resetting of strategy and goals and such like, but it also is it uh, transitioning people in some sort of way? How, how, what, what's the, what's, what does it look like practically? Well, let me tell you, what I see when I work with founders who are doing this is they typically wait too late to do the pivot in the first place. They kind of, we all sort of learn, don't give up, never quit. And there's all these lessons of entrepreneurs who just stuck it out and mm-hmm. then they eventually did it. And so I think many entrepreneurs try to do that. And then it's only when it's so obvious that things are not working and they don't have a lot of time left that they sort of do this Hail Mary, this sort of, you know, pray and, and we're just going to change a lot of things all at once. Yeah. And I think that is dangerous. And yeah, you have to cut people. You don't have a lot of time. You're sort of making a swing in the dark. And what I really recommend is, is actually making that change earlier so that you have a little bit more time. You have a little more patience that you can have towards the new things you're working on. You're not working under so much pressure. Um, and yes, sometimes you do have to change personnel, but it gives you a little bit more time to see who, who can handle the transition, right? If you don't have a lot of time, you just sort of have to make some cuts. Maybe you have to make a lot of cuts and just go with it. When you start a little bit earlier and you give yourself time to kind of explore the pivot, you can see who's comfortable in this space, who maybe steps up to the plate, who you thought was actually great, but actually is kind of like needed that stability and can't deal without it. Um, and you can make more informed decisions about personnel and, and all the other choices you're trying to change with the business at the same time. And what's fascinating about organizational pivots, is, especially when you're working with funders, which I know you do, uh, it's often the people that found the firm initially who are the problem. They're the people who get in the way of the scaling process. Uh, I wonder what your experience is with that. You know, it, it's true that there are entrepreneurs who who really struggle, who are struggle in one capacity than the other, and it's it's more rare than common to see you know a founder like a, a Bill Gates, a Steve Jobs, or a Mark Zuckerberg who kind of carry the company through this extended period. More often, I mean, Instacart recently IPO'd, right? And the founder that took it to this point eventually um, took the chairman role, and now with the IPO, he can kind of step off the board. Um, and they actually took a meta executive who spent 10 years inside the company rapidly growing. She was the one who kind of came over and helped take that company to the next step because she's sort of seen what that scale looks like. A lot of entrepreneurs love that creative energy and the kind of um, 
the excitement and the no rules that sort of come with the early parts of the yeah. company. But then you do need someone who's oriented differently, who can kind of say, you know, rules are important, process is important. I coach a client right now who is himself part of that transition. He's trying to make the transition where he was part of the cowboy era. And now he's trying to set uh, more structure, even though he also kind of like enjoyed that period, he's trying to evolve. And so working, I'm not saying that it's not possible, right? You can work with leaders to kind of develop a new capacity, but it requires almost their own pivot in the their leadership approach and the way they do it. Yeah. And so you, may, you mentioned resilience earlier on. So resilience is often described as coming back from a failure. But uh, what you're saying is you need to adapt first before the failure arrives. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, my I think we all have slightly different views on, on resilience, and there's a lot of ways to look at it. To me, resilience is all about adapting in the face of challenge or change. And uh, that can that challenge can be we failed at something and how do I live with myself and move forward from it? Or it could be something more, you know, specific like, oh, the market conditions have really evolved and we thought we could raise around and now we can't and we have to do something different. Um, and so organizations um, often get really good at handling a particular system and then they, they struggle with the change. Um, but let's talk about personal resilience too, because I think that if you, when you support the leader and the leadership that's, that's trying to make the change and the people, it makes the organizational change a little bit easier. And I think that, um, you know, you hear this a lot, but, but it's always hard to, to dedicate the time to it, but taking care of your physical body and taking yeah. care of your creative and emotional needs ends up being really important, right? Like I have several clients where uh, when they deal with stress, they, they get in the gym, they're doing their weight training or they're doing their boxing workouts where they can really disconnect, right? Because part of the challenge with something new happening is that it takes over your brain. You become anxious, you become sort of worried. You feel like you need to devote more brain power to solving this problem. And that's, that's good. That's good, but you also need that time to kind of really separate. And so for some people, it becomes this physical thing where if you're lifting heavy or you're, you know, running and training, you can't really think about your problem, right? And you yeah. let your brain rest. Similarly, for some people, it's like if, if their work is monotonous or they're kind of grinding through something, having that creative outlet. I have two different clients who are doing like music, you know, so music is their sort of outlet where they can kind of play and have fun and maybe get out some of the um th the sense of autonomy right because yeah. sometimes you got to go back to work and and the company needs this one thing and you just have to deliver that one thing even as a leader you sometimes feel constrained and so having that creative outlet can be really powerful yeah that's good advice um but it's interesting isn't it because um so you know what you're talking about here and having a creative outlet some people call that talking about their emotions spilling their guts i know it's You've talked about that yourself, but there are various different cultural considerations here. Different cultures find that different, don't they? Maybe you could say a few words about that. Yeah, I mean, culture and, and there's so everyone kind of comes at this a little bit differently. You know, um, when I coach, I do notice a difference between when I coach men and women, for instance, right? Like sometimes, you know, women, when I work with them, often are they they're they're more in touch with their emotions. They they have a finer tuned sense of where they're at and maybe they feel more open to, to kind of sharing that and using that as a release mechanism of, of, of you know, 
the emotions are expressed and then you can kind of clear them and move forward. Right. Um, some of my male clients, some of my, you know, I'm Asian American and I work with, you know, Asian American clients and non-Asian clients. And I have seen that sometimes, you know, my, my Asian clients, it doesn't come as naturally to them, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's something that maybe they were taught to sort of keep a lid on, on their feelings and on their emotions. And, or it's a, it's a point of vulnerability. I think a lot of men feel that uh, being too expressive of sorrow or fear or these other emotions can be considered unmasculine, weak, that's sort of opening for, for attack. Um, but, that's, but that's fascinating, isn't it? Because what you're talking about there are people from an Eastern culture and they've come to the West. And actually what you're adopting is a Western approach, which often is based on the Eastern philosophies, which, and so it's, it's, it's odd where, you know, what, what Buddhism is a lot about is about inner work. It's about inner peace. It's about self-reflection. It's about self-change, you know, that sort of stuff. And it seems to be more of a Westernized approach to be doing the, the endless chatting and jabbering and talking and such like. So I wonder how you marry together those two different sort of um, paradigms. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because we, um, you know, while Buddhism, it, it, you know, one Buddhism has really, you know, shaped a lot parts of, of the West too over time, over the last hundred years or so, right? And, and we think about um, um, that, that sense of, you know, a lot of these enlightened alien races in science fiction always are mm -hmm. kind of like vaguely Buddhist. You know, in nature, right? They they sort of mastered their emotions, um, and they're a higher order or something. And and I also think that the immigrant experience is relevant, right? Like um, Asians in Asia versus Asians in yeah. the West. You know, the 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 immigration process is a very brutal one. It's a very grinding one, where some lessons are learned in that process of like you really have to rely on yourself. You don't have a lot of family you know, East, Eastern typically are more collectivist societies, but you don't have that support system in America. So you actually are in the West. So you develop almost like a different mentality of like, you must rely on yourself. Don't let others sort of take advantage of you. Mm -hmm. And then those lessons then get passed down to the children who are now kind of like navigating different worlds. And I, you know, I was born in Suzhou, China, but I've kind of placed myself in this one, one and a half generation of like, I didn't really have that much exposure in Asia before I kind of came to the US. Um, but then I compare that to my wife who was born in the US and there's still a difference. I knew that I was an immigrant and I almost have this gratitude of just saying, hey, look, I'm glad to be here. You know, I could have grown up there and I don't think it would, my life would be the same. Whereas for her, it's like, she's Asian American, but she's born in America. And she's like, hey, this is always my birthright. Why are you treating me differently? And, and that's, you know, the conflicting, values are at play. So I think everyone comes into this from a, from their own cultural, like the larger cultural heritage, mm -hmm. and then the immediate family heritage of their environment. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, very good. So um, why coaching? Why not other forms of development? Well, you know, I first experienced coaching through my career as a gymnast. So I was actually um, in gymnastics for about 16 years, um, you know, competitive at the national level in the United States and on the collegiate level. And yeah. so coaching to me always started with, hey, we're going to develop you as an athlete. And I appreciated so much the, the transformation, the growth that I had as a 
as an athletic, as an athlete receiving coaching. Then over the years, I've received, you know, life coaching, executive coaching during my entrepreneurial journeys and in my, you know, career. And Mm -hmm. To me, it just feels like the right step forward. I I think when I told, I started coaching while I was at Meta after the acquisition of my startup. And I just kind of threw up a webpage and I I started to entertain clients. And there was a certain satisfaction in doing that that I felt really connected to. Um, My father's an educator. My mother's a gymnastics coach herself. So I think there's always, to me, a marrying of the direct hands-on work with individuals with you know, I write a newsletter, I've written you know, articles for a number of publications of the teaching and the sort of um, frameworks, right? This book that I'm working on and, and um, writing is, is, a, is a form of that. So I think that coaching, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, right? It gives you a lot of insights, right? As you work with the clients, you learn a lot and then you write that down and then the writing reaches new audiences and those people might write back to you and give you their feedback. And so it's mm-hmm. it, it to me it feels like a really lovely uh, cycle of learning, supporting, and then learning again. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the point, isn't it? I think people undervalue the love of learning. I think people forget that resilience is actually about learning. And it's interesting your point about pivoting because that's about learning, and um, it's sort of the it's sort of become unfashionable to talk about it, which is a shame, really, because actually it's the point I would su- suggest. That's so, that's such a great point, right? That a lot of um, folks feel like, oh, well, I finished school, you know, I finished, I'm not a a junior, uh, you know, uh, worker anymore. I'm supposed to have all the answers. I don't need Mm -hmm. to really learn. Um, The time for learning is over. Mm -hmm. Um, When that's sort of silly, isn't it? Like we, we, you know, there's always room for more learning. And I think that you know, brain plasticity, you know, you know, some of this and, and even like physical capacity in, in uh, even older adults, they've shown that, you, you know, your, our brains, our bodies can still respond to training, can still respond to these um, new stimuli. And yeah. we sort of shortchange ourselves if we say, well, well, that's it. I'm putting a cap on who I am anymore. Um, but there is a sense of, vulnerability that has to emerge if you if you're learning that you, you have to admit that you don't know yeah. uh, or you're uncertain I don't know what, what have you seen that in in your work like how do you help people navigate that allowing themselves to say they don't know I, um, I think it's a fascinating concept isn't it I think there's two there are a number of different types of problem here one which is the person that doesn't know what they don't know and the second one is the person who has an ego that gets in the way of themselves and um and one of the classic things is, is the problem with development and the sort of process side of it, which is it's very hard for senior executives to go on training courses, um, which is where executive coaching really found its uh, found its feet, really, sort of take the board away, take a senior executive away and sit, sit down and say, let me work with you and such like. And I think that's where coaching is really embedded things in. But years ago, I remember reading a book called The Fish Rots from the Head, which is a great Title, and I have to say that having read the book, the be- it was the best thing about the book. And um, but the point of it, <laughs> the point of the, the thing saying is that the exponential return you get if you develop the most senior people in the organisation is something that's really forgotten. And um, so people are very prepared to get development for people low down in the organisation because there seems to be somehow a, a gift that we give them. But actually, the gift for the whole organization is for the CEO and the top team to work out. The number of times on change programs that I've rocked up 
at the behest of a CEO or a board or a CFO or CTO, or whatever it might be, and have said, this is the issue. And within three seconds, you know that they're the issue. It's not the people. It's not they're right. always the issue. I mean, you know, it's it's obviously it's it becomes quite wearing after a while. It's a, I've got a special tool that helps us point out where the issue sits. They say, "What is that? For, that's called now." Hold up a mirror and say, "Just try this one." And uh, that, but that's, that's tough, isn't it? it it's it tough to work through their ego to help them see. Yeah. You know, you almost have to like slowly let them through this process where they come to realize that it's their own behavior that's creating some of the problematic results that they're seeing because they have so much influence over what's happening. Um, and when they use it in, in an in unskillful way, let's say uh, they, they create results that they're unhappy with. And it's like, who, who do you have to blame the, the, the line worker who, you know, doesn't make too much money and, and doesn't have a lot of training and not a lot of influence or you, <laughs> And that's the point of a coach, isn't it? The point of a coach is to be able to hold that mirror up and, and have the chutzpah to be able to work with someone uh, in a way that's significant for them. And that's the interesting thing about style and chemistry and such like, which is such an important part of coaching. You know, you, you have that first meeting where you sit down with a CEO, whoever it is, whatever level, and you figure out, can you work together? Because um, to get the best out of the coach, it's, it's good to let the coach be themselves. And um, sometimes that can be great. And sometimes, I know you've done this, uh, you need more than one. Or you need to have one for a few sessions and another one for a few sessions. And I think I think it's something that happens in professional supervision with psychotherapists and counsellors, very rarely with coaches. You have professional supervision required as part of your development. And the encouragement is to have a different forms of supervision. And I think that's great for your chief exec. Just as you said as a gymnast, you know, if you're a professional athlete, you have a squad, you have a posse of coaches. Why wouldn't you do that as a CEO? And I work with people who are really enlightened and they're the people that have the coaches and they don't just have one, you know. So it's possible that you and I, Jason, can be collaborating. I would love that. You know, I think that there's... there's Good, co- good so cop, to- bad cop. <laughs> you know, I, there's, there's so many different ways to coach. And I think that's that your point about the relationship and the dynamic there is so important. Um, I, I think that, uh, there's a time and a season, right? I've had three different coaches in my own professional journey, and I think each one of them contributes something different. So yeah. that's part of it too, right? You, as a coach myself, I'm, I'm continuously experiencing different people's modalities. So I kind of also, I go to workshops, I go to events and I'm like, Oh, I like that. Or, Oh, I would, I, I wouldn't do that, you know, and, and, and finding your own rhythm and, and style uh, builds your own confidence as a coach. And then that instills the confidence in the client because they, they see that you can be open in your own skin and you can be vulnerable and you're sort of okay with that. And by demonstrating that it hopefully opens the door for, for them to kind of, uh, engage with those behaviors as well. Yeah. And of course, if the coach himself isn't constantly learning, as you've just been demonstrating that you do, then actually you've got a problem on your hands. Because if the advocate for learning isn't learning themselves, that's a that's a challenge. No, that's not gonna that's not gonna work out, is it? Good. Excellent. Well tell us about this book and how people get find out more stuff about you and how people can contact you. Absolutely. So um the path to pivot is a playbook for you know venture backed startup founders who are hitting that point where their growth is really stalled out. They've made some progress, but it's not enough. And now they're wondering what to do. And 
it helps them go through the process of deciding whether to grit and stick it out, pivot and change or quit and, and go do something else. Um, and so, you know, this book will be out in the end of October. So probably around the time when this, you know, episode is coming out, um, they can learn more about uh, me and we'll have a special page set up at jasonshen.com slash resilience unraveled. So they can learn more and, and receive some of these, um, you know, a, a first chapter, a couple of case studies of example pivots, if this is something uh, they're into and, and more about me. Um, so thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm really grateful for, for what you do. And, um, you know, I do hope we can collaborate in the future. Let's do it. Okay. You take care. Thanks. Take care. Glad we could make this happen. Have a good one. We'll talk soon. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed. And if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.